Part 2 of History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume 4 by Friedrich Schiller, Part 2. All the previous success in Germany were owing altogether to arms. The greatness of Gustavus himself was the work of the army, the fruits of their discipline, their bravery, and their persevering courage under numberless dangers and privations. However wisely his plans were laid in the cabinet, it was to the army ultimately that he was indebted for the execution and the expanding designs of the general did but continually impose new burdens on the soldiers. All the decisive advantages of the war had been violently gained by a barbarous sacrifice of the soldiers' lives in winter campaigns, forced marches, stormings, and pitched battles. For it was Gustavus' maxim never to decline a battle so long as it cost him nothing but men. The soldiers could not long be kept ignorant of their own importance, and they justly demanded a share in the spoil which had been won by their own blood. Yet, frequently, they hardly received their pay, and the rapacity of individual generals or the wants of the state generally swallowed up the great part of the sums raised by the contributions were levied upon the conquered provinces. For all the privations he endured, the soldier had no other recompenses than the doubtful chance either of plunder or promotion, in both of which he was often disappointed. During the lifetime of Gustavus Adolphus, the combined influence of fear and hope had suppressed any open complaint. But after his death, the murmurs were loud and universal and the soldiery seized the most dangerous moment to impress their superiors with a sense of their importance. Two officers, Pyul and Michifal, notorious as restless characters even during the king's life, set the example in the camp on the Danube, which in a few days was imitated by almost all the officers of the army. They solemnly bound themselves to obey no orders, till these arrears now outstanding for months even years should be paid up and a gratuity either in money or lands made to each man according to his services immense sums they said were daily raised by contributions and all dissipated by a few they were called out to serve amidst frost and snow and no reward requited their incessant labors the soldiers excess at heilbronn had been blamed but no one ever talked of their services. The world rung with the tidings of the conquest and victories, but it was by their hands that they had been fought and won. The numbers of the malcontent daily increased, and they even attempted by letters, which were fortunately intercepted, to seduce the armies on the Rhine and in Saxony. Neither the representation of Bernard of Weimar nor the stone reproaches of his harsher associate in command could suppress this mutiny, while the vehemence of Horn seemed only to increase the insolence of the insurgents. 
The conditions they insisted on were that certain towns should be assigned to each regiment for the payment of arrears. Four weeks were allowed to the Swedish Chancellor to comply with his demands, and in case of refusal, they announced that they would pay themselves and never more draw a sword for Sweden. This pressing demands made at the very time when the military chest was exhausted and credit at a low ebb greatly embarrassed the Chancellor. The remedy he saw must be found quickly before the contagion should spread to the other troops and he should be deserted by all his armies at once. Among all the Swedish generals, there was only one of sufficient authority and influence with the soldiers to put an end to this dispute. The Duke of Weimar was the favorite of the army, and his prudent moderation had won the goodwill of the soldiers, while his military experience had excited their admiration. He now undertook the task of appeasing the discontented troops, but aware of his importance, he embraced the opportunity to make advantageous stipulations for himself and to make the embarrassment of the Chancellor subservient to his own views. Gustavus Adolphus has flattered him with the promise of the Duchy of Franconia to be formed out of the bishopric of Würzburg and Bamberg, and he now insists on the performance of this pledge. He at the same time demanded a chief command as Generalissimo of Sweden. The abuse which Duke of Weimar thus made of his influence so irritated Oxenstiern that in the first moment of his displeasure he gave him his dismissal from Swedish service. But he soon thought better of it and determined, instead of sacrificing so important a leader, to attach him to the Swedish interest at any cost. He therefore granted to him the Franconian bishoprics as a fief of the Swedish crown reserving, however, the two fortresses of Würzburg and Königshofen, which were to be garrisoned by Swedes, and also engaged in the name of Swedish crown to secure these territories to the duke. His demand of the supreme authority was evaded on some spacious pretext. The duke did not delay to display his gratitude for this valuable grant, and by his influence and activity soon restored the tranquility to the army. Large sums of money and still more extensive estate were divided among the officers, amounting in value to about five millions of dollars, and to which they had no other rights but that of conquest. In the meantime, however, the opportunity for a great undertaking had been lost, and the United Generals divided their forces to oppose the enemy in other quarters. Gustavus Horn, after a short inroad into the upper Palatinate, and the capture of Neumark directed his march toward the Swabian frontier, where the imperialists strongly reinforced, threatening Württemberg. At his approach, the enemy retired to the Lake of Constance, but only to show the Swedes the road into a district hitherto unvisited by war. A post on the entrance to Switzerland would be highly serviceable to the Swedes, and the town of Kostinitz seemed peculiarly well fitted to a point of communication between him and the confederated cantons. Accordingly, Gustavus Horn immediately commenced the siege of it, but destitute of artillery, for which he was obliged to send to Württemberg, he could not press the attack with sufficient vigor, 
to prevent the enemy from throwing supplies into the town, which the lake afforded them convenient opportunity of doing. He, therefore, after an ineffectual attempt, quitted the place and its neighborhood, and hastened to meet the more threatening danger upon the Danube. At the emperor's instigation, the cardinal Infante, the brother of Philip IV of Spain and the viceroy of Milan, had raised an army of 14,000 men, intended to act upon the Rhine, independently of Wallenstein, and to protect Alsace. This force now appeared in Bavaria under command of the Duke of Feria, a Spaniard, and that they might be directly employed against the Swedes. Altringer was ordered to join them with his corps. Upon the first intelligence of their approach, Horn had summoned to his assistance the Palgrave of Birkenfeld from the Rhine, and being joined by at Stockach, boldly advanced to meet the enemy's army of 30,000 men. The latter had taken the route across the Danube into Swabia, where Gustavus Horn came so close upon them that the two armies were only separated from each other by half a German mile. But, instead of accepting the offer of battle, the imperialists moved by the forest towns toward the Brisgau and Alsace, where they arrived in time to relieve Breisach and to arrest the victorious progress of the Rhinegrave Otto Louis. The latter had shortly before taken the forest towns and supported by Palatine of Birkenfeld, who had liberated the lower Palatinate and beaten the Duke of Lorraine out of the field, had once more given the superiority to the Swedish arms in that quarter. He was now forced to retire before the superior numbers of the enemy, but Horn and Birkenfeld quickly advanced to his support, and the imperialist, after a brief triumph, was again expelled from Alsace. The severity of the autumn in which this hapless retreat had to be conducted proved fatal to the most of the Italians, and their leader, the Duke of Feria, died of grief at the failure of his enterprise. In the meantime, Duke Bernard of Weimar had taken up his position on the Danube with 18 regiments of infantry and 140 squadrons of horse to cover Franconia and to watch the movement of the imperial Bavarian army upon that river. No sooner had Altringer departed to join the Italians on the Feria than Bernard, profiting by his absence, hastened across the Danube and with the rapidity of lightning appeared before the Ratisbonne. The possession of this town would ensure the success of Swedish design upon Bavaria and Austria. It would establish them firmly on the Danube and provide a safe refuge in case of defeat, while it alone could give permanence to their conquest in that quarter. To defend Ratisbonne was the urgent advice which the dying Tilly left to the elector, and Gustavus Adolphus had lamented it as an irreparable loss that the Bavarians had anticipated him in taking possession of this place. Indescribable, therefore, was the consternation of Maximilian when Duke Bernard suddenly appeared before the town and prepared in earnest to besiege it. The garrison consisted of not more than fifteen companies, mostly newly raised soldiers, although that number was more than sufficient to weary out an enemy of far superior force if supported by well-disposed and warlike inhabitants. 
but this was not the greatest danger which Bavarian garrison had to contend against. The Protestant inhabitants of Ratisbon, equally jealous of their civil and religious freedom, had unwillingly submitted to the yoke of Bavaria, and had long looked with impatience for the appearance of the deliverer. Bernard's arrival before the wars filled them with lively joy, and there was much reason to fear that they would support the attempt of the besiegers without, by exciting a tumult within. In this perplexity, the elector addressed the most pressing entreaties to the emperor and the duke of Friedland to assist him, were it only with five thousand men. Seven messengers in succession were dispatched by Ferdinand to Wallenstein, who promised immediate succors and even announced to the elector the near advance of twelve thousand men on the gallows but at the same time forbade that general on the pain of death to march. Meanwhile, the Bavarian commandant of Ratisbon, in the hope of speedy assistance, made the best preparation for defense, armed the Roman Catholic peasants, disarmed and carefully watched the Protestant citizens, lest they should attempt any hostile design against the garrison. But as no relief arrived, and the enemy's artillery incessantly battered the walls, he consulted his own safety and that of the garrison by an honorable capitulation and abandoned the Bavarian officials and ecclesiastics to the conqueror's mercy. The possession of Latisbon enlarged the project of the duke and Bavaria itself now appeared too narrow a field for his bold design. He determined to penetrate to the frontier of Austria to arm the protestant peasantry against the emperor and restore to them their religious liberty. He had already taken Straubingen while another Swedish army was advancing successfully along the northern bank of the Danube. At the head of his Swedes, bidding defiance to the severity of the weather, he reached the mouth of the Isel, which he passed in the presence of the Bavarian general Werth, who was encamped on that river. Passau and Linz trembled for their fates. The terrified emperor redoubled his entreaties and commands to Wallenstein to hasten with all speed to the relief of the hard-pressed Bavarians. But here the victorious Bernard of his own accord checked his career of conquest. Having in front of him the river Inn, guarded by a number of strong fortresses, and behind him two hostile armies, a disaffected country and the river Isel, while his rear was covered by no tenable position, and no entrenchment could be made in the frozen ground, and threatened by the whole force of Wallenstein, who had at least resolved to march the Danube, by a timely retreat he escaped the danger of being cut off from Ratisbon and surrounded by the enemy. He hastened across the Isel to the Danube to defend the conquest he had made in the upper Palatinate against the Wallenstein, and fully resolved not to decline a battle, if necessary, with that general. But Wallenstein, who was not disposed for any great exploits on the Danube, did not wait for his approach, and before the Bavarians could congratulate themselves on his arrival, he suddenly withdrew again into Bohemia. The duke thus ended his victorious campaign and allowed his troops their well-earned repose in winter quarters upon an enemy's country. While in Suabia, the war was thus successfully conducted by Gustavus Horn, and on the upper and lower Rhine, 
by the Palatine of Birkenfeld, General Baudissen, and the Rhinegrave Otto Louis, and by Duke Bernard on the Danube, the reputation of the Swedish arms was as glorious sustained in Lower Saxony and Westphalia by the Duke of Lunenburg and the Landgrave Hesse Castle. The fortress of Hamel was taken by Duke George after brave defense and a brilliant victory obtained over the Imperial General Gronsfeld by the United Swedish and Hessian armies near Ollendorf. Count Wasserburg, a natural son of Gustavus Adolphus, showed himself in this battle worthy of his descent. Sixteen pieces of cannon, the whole baggage of the imperialists, together with seventy-four colors, fell into the hand of Swedes. Three thousand of the enemy perished on the field, and nearly the same numbers were taken prisoners. The town of Osnaburg surrendered to the Swedish colonel Kniphausen and Padobon to the Landgrave Hesse, while on the other hand Bükeborg, a very important place for the Swedes, fell into the hand of the imperialists. The Swedish banners were victorious in almost every quarter of Germany, and the year after the death of Gustavus left no trace of the loss which had been sustained in the person of that great leader. In a review of the important events which signalized the campaign of 1633, the inactivity of a man of whom the highest expectation had been formed justly excites the astonishment. Among all the generals who distinguished themselves in this campaign, none could be compared with Wallenstein in experience, talents, and reputation. And yet, after the Battle of Lutzen, we lose sight of him entirely. The fall of his great rival had left the whole theater of glory open to him. All Europe was now attentively awaiting those exploits, which should efface the remembrance of this defeat, and still prove to the world his military superiority. Nevertheless, he continued inactive in Bohemia, while the emperor's losses in Bavaria, Lower Saxony and the Rhine pressingly called for his presence, a conduct equally unintelligible to friend and foe, the terror and at the same time the last hope of the emperor. After the defeat of Lutzen, he hastened in Bohemia, where he instituted the strictest inquiry into the conduct of his officers in that battle. Those whom the council of war declared guilty of misconduct were put to death without mercy. Those who had behaved with bravery rewarded with princely munificence and the memories of the dead honored by splendid monuments. During the winter he oppressed the imperial provinces by enormous contributions and exhausted the Austrian territories by his winter quarters, which he purposely avoided taking up in an enemy's country. And in the spring of 1633, instead of being the first to open the campaign with this well-chosen and well-appointed army and to make a worthy display of his great abilities, he was the last to appear in the field. Even then, it was an hereditary province of Austria, which he selected as the seat of war. Of all the Austrian provinces, Silesia was most exposed to danger. Three different armies, a Swedish on the Count Thun, a Saxon on the Arnheim and the Duke of Lauenburg, and one of Brandenburg and Burgstorf, 
had at the same time carried war into this country. They had already taken possession of the most important places, and even Breslau had embraced the cause of the Allies. But this crowd of commanders and armies were the very means of saving this province to the emperor, for the jealousy of the generals and the mutual hatred of the Saxons and Swedes never allowed them to act with unanimity. Arnheim and Thun contended for the chief command. The troops of Brandenburg and Saxony combined against the Swedes, whom they looked upon as troublesome strangers, who ought to be got rid of as soon as possible. The Saxons, on the contrary, lived in a very intimate footing with the imperialists, and officers of both these hostile armies often visited and entertained each other. The imperialists were allowed to remove their property without hindrance, and many did not affect to conceal that they had received large sums from Vienna. Among such equivocal allies, the Swedes saw themselves sold and betrayed, and any great enterprise was out of the question, while so bad an understanding prevailed between the troops. General Arnheim was too absent the great part of the time. When he at last returned, Wallenstein was fast approaching the frontiers with a formidable force. His army amounted to 40,000 men, while to oppose him the Allies had only 24,000. They nevertheless resolved to give him battle and marched to Munsterberg, where he had formed an entrenched camp. But Wallenstein remained inactive for eight days. He then left his entrenchments and marched slowly and with a composure to the enemy's camp. But even after quitting his position, and when the enemy, emboldened by his past delay, manfully prepared to receive him, he declined the opportunity of fighting. The caution with which he avoided the battle was imputed to fear, but the well-established reputation of Wallenstein enabled him to despise this suspicion. The vanity of the Allies allowed them not to see that he purposely saved them a defeat, because a victory at that time would not have served his own ends. To convince them of his superior power, and that his inactivity proceeded not from any fear of them, he put to death the commander of a castle that fell into his hands, because he had refused at once to surrender an untenable place. For nine days did the two armies remain within musket shots of each other, when Count Tursky, from the camp of the imperialists, appeared with a trumpeter in that of allies, inviting General Arnheim to a conference. The purport was that Wallenstein, notwithstanding his superiority, was willing to agree a cessation of arms for six weeks. He was come, he said, to conclude the lasting peace with the Swedes, and with the princes of the empire to pay the soldiers and to satisfy everyone. All this was in his power, and if Austrian court hesitated to confirm his agreement, he would unite with the allies and, as he privately whispered to Arnheim, hunt the emperor to the devil. At the second conference he expressed himself still more plainly to Count Thun, all the privileges of the Bohemians engaged should be confirmed anew, the exiles recalled and restored to their estate, 
and he himself would be the first to resign his shares of them. The Jesuit asked the orders of all the past grievances should be banished, the Swedish crown indemnified by stated payments, and all the superfluous troops on both sides employed against the Turks. The last article explained the whole mystery. If, he continued, he should obtain the crown of Bohemia, all the exiles would have reason to applaud his generosity. Perfect toleration of religion should be established within the kingdom. The Palatine family be reinstated in its rights, and he would accept Margraviate of Moravia as a compensation for Mecklenburg. The allied armies would then, under his command, advance upon Vienna and, sword in hand, compel the emperor to ratify the treaty. Thus the veil at last removed from the schemes over which he had brooded for years in mysterious silence. Every circumstance now convinced him that not a moment was to be lost in its execution. Nothing but a blind confidence in the good fortune and military genius of the Duke of Friedland had induced the Emperor, in the face of the remonstrance of Bavaria and Spain, and at the expense of his own reputation, to confer upon this imperious leader such an unlimited command. But this belief in Wallenstein being invincible had been much weakened by his inaction, and almost entirely overthrown by the defeat at Lutzen. His enemies at the imperial court now renewed their intrigues, and the emperor's disappointment at the failure of his hopes procured for their remonstrance a favorable reception. Wallenstein's whole conduct was now reviewed with the most malicious criticism. His ambitious haughtiness, his disobedience to the emperor's orders, were recalled to the recollection of that jealous prince, as well as the complaints of the Austrian subject against his boundless oppression. His fidelity was questioned, and alarming hints thrown out as to his secret views. These insinuations, which the conduct of Duke seemed but too well to justify, failed not to make a deep impression on Ferdinand, but the step had been taken, and the great power with which Wallenstein had been invested could not be taken from him without danger. Insensibly to diminish the power was the only cause that now remained, and to effect this it must be in the first place be divided. But above all, the emperor's present dependence on good will of his general put an end to. But even this right had been resigned in his engagement with Wallenstein, and the emperor's own handwriting secured him against every attempt to unite another general with him in the command, or to exercise any immediate act of authority over the troops. As this disadvantageous contract could neither be kept nor broken, recourse was had to artifice. Wallenstein was imperial generalissimo in Germany, but his command extended no further, and he could not presume to exercise any authority over a foreign army. A Spanish army was accordingly raised in Milan, and marched into Germany under Spanish general. Wallenstein now ceased to be indispensable because he was no longer supreme, and in case of necessity, the emperor was now provided with the means of support even against him.
The duke quickly and deeply felt whence this blow came, and whither it was aimed. In vain did he protest against this violation of the compact to the Cardinal Infante. The Italian army continued its march, and he was forced to detach General Altringer to join it with a reinforcement. He took care, indeed, so closely to fetter the latter as to prevent the Italian army from acquiring any great reputation in Alsace and Suevia, but this bold step of the court awakened him from his security and warned him of the approach of danger. That he might not a second time be deprived of his command and lose the fruits of all his labors, he must accelerate the accomplishment of his long-meditated designs. He secured the attachment of his troops by removing the doubtful officers and by his liberality to the rest. He had sacrificed the welfare of the army, every other order in the state, every consideration of justice and humanity, and therefore he reckoned upon their gratitude. At the very moment when he meditated an unparalleled act of ingratitude against the order of his own good fortune, he founded all his hope upon the gratitude which were due to himself. The leaders of Silesian armies had no authority from their principals to consent, on their own discretion, to such important proposals as those of Wallenstein, and they did not even feel themselves warranted in granting, for more than a fortnight, the cessation of hostilities which he demanded. Before the Duke disclosed his design to Sweden and Saxony, he had deemed it advisable to secure the sanction of France to his bold undertaking. For this purpose, a secret negotiation had been carried on with the greatest possible caution and distrust by Count Kinski with Fikir, the French ambassador at Dresden, and had terminated according to his wishes. Fikir received orders from his court to promise every assistance on the part of France and to offer the Duke of considerable pecuniary aid in case of need. But it was this excessive caution to secure himself on all sides that led to his ruin. The French ambassador with astonishment discovered that a plan which more than any other required secrecy had been communicated to the Swedes and Saxons, and yet it was generally known that the Saxon ministry was in the interest of the emperor, and on the other hand, the condition offered to Swedes fell far too short of their expectations to be likely to be accepted. Fikir, therefore, could not believe that the duke could be serious in calculating upon the aid of the latter and the silence of the former. He communicated accordingly his doubts and anxieties to the Swedish chancellor, who equally distrusted the views of Wallenstein and disliked his plans. Although it was no secret to Oxenstiern that the duke had formally entered into a similar negotiation with Gustavus Adolphus, he could not credit the possibility of inducing a whole army to revolt and of his extravagant promises. So daring a design and such imprudent conduct seemed not to be consistent with the duke's reserved and suspicious temper, and he was more inclined to consider the whole as a result of dissimulation and treachery because he had less reason to doubt his prudence than his honesty.
Oxenstiern's doubts at last affected Arnheim himself, who, in full confidence in Wallenstein's sincerity, had repaired to the Chancellor at Gelenhausen to persuade him to lend some of his best regiment to the Duke to aid him in the execution of the plan. They began to suspect that the whole proposal was only a snare to disarm the Allies and to betray the flower of their troops into the hands of the Emperor. Wallenstein's well-known character did not contradict the suspicion and the inconsistencies in which he afterwards involved himself entirely destroyed all confidence in his sincerity. While he was endeavoring to draw the Swedes into this alliance and requiring the help of their best troops, he declared to Arnheim that they must begin with expelling the Swedes from the empire, and while the Saxon officers relying upon the security of the truce, repaired in great numbers to his camp, he made an unsuccessful attempt to seize them. He was the first to break the truce, which some months afterwards he renewed, though not without great difficulty. All confidence in his sincerity was lost. His whole conduct was regarded as a tissue of deceit and low cunning, devised to weaken the Allies and repair his own strengths. This indeed he actually did effect, as his own army daily augmented, while that of the Allies was reduced nearly one-half by desertion and bad provisions. But he did not make that use of his superiority which Vienna expected. When all men were looking for a decisive blow to be struck, he suddenly renewed the negotiations, and when the truce lulled the Allies into security, he as suddenly recommenced hostilities. All these contradictions arose out of double and irreconcilable designs to ruin at once the emperor and Swedes, and to conclude a separate peace with the Saxons. Impatient at the ill success of his negotiations, he at last determined to display his strength, the more so as the pressing distress within the empire and the growing dissatisfaction of the imperial court admitted not of his making any longer delay. Before the last cessation of hostilities, General Holk from Bohemia had attacked the circle of Meissen, lay waste everything on his route with a fire and sword, driven the elector into his fortress, and taken the town of Leipzig. But the truce in Silesia put a period to his ravages, and the consequence of his excesses brought him to the grave at Adolf. As soon as hostilities were recommenced, Wallenstein made a movement as if he designed to penetrate through Lusatia into Saxony and circulated the report that Piccolomini had already invaded that country. Arnheim immediately broke up his camp in Silesia to follow him and hasten to the assistance of the electorate. By this means, the Swedes were left exposed, who were encamped in small force on the canton at Steinau on the Oder. And this was exactly what Wallenstein desired. He allowed the Saxon general to advance sixty miles toward Meissen, and then suddenly turning toward the Oder, surprised the Swedish army in the most complete security. Their cavalries were first beaten by General Schafkoch, who was sent against them, and the infantry completely surrounded at Steinhaus by Duke's army, which followed. 
Wallenstein gave Count Thun half an hour to deliberate whether he would defend himself with 2,500 men against more than 20,000 or surrender at discretion. But there was no room for deliberation. The army surrendered and the most complete victory was obtained without bloodshed. Colors, baggage and artillery fell into the hand of the victors. The officers were taken into custody the privates drafted into the army of Wallenstein. And now at last, after banishment of fourteen years, after numberless change of fortune, the order of Bohemian insurrection, and the remote origin of this destructive war, the notorious Count Thun was in the power of his enemies. With bloodthirsty impatience, the arrival of this great criminal was looked for in Vienna, where they already anticipated the malicious triumph of sacrificing so distinguished a victim to public justice. But to deprive the Jesuit of this pleasure was a still sweeter triumph to Wallenstein, and Thun was set at liberty. Fortunately for him, he knew more than it was prudent to have divulged in Vienna, and his enemies were also those of Wallenstein. A defeat might have been forgiven in Vienna, but this disappointment of their hopes they could not pardon. What should I have done with this madman, he writes with a malicious sneer to the minister who called him to account for this unseasonable magnanimity. Would to heaven the enemy had no generals but such as he. At the head of the Swedish army he will render us much better service than in prison. End of part two.